Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's a joy to be with you this morning, even if it's virtual. This has been a tough season for a variety of reasons, but we can't deny the fact that it has been a blessing in many ways. It's brought a greater sense of dependency in many of our homes. It's drawn us afresh back to God's Word to let Him search and examine our hearts. Let me tell you about this guy who was on a long flight. This was before the pandemic. He found himself seated beside an attractive woman. And as you can imagine, he was on his best behavior. In a couple of hours, with his witty sense of humor, he had things going really well, at least from his perspective. At one point, the woman actually looked at him and said, you know what, every time you smile, I feel like inviting you over to my place. And he was thrilled. And he looked at her and said, are you single? And she said, no, I'm a dentist. You see, he felt he was great on the outside. We can have an appearance like that when the dentist is actually drawn to our cavities. Or in other words, we can be great evangelical Christians on the surface, and we feel God is close to us, and He is. But He is close because He sees spiritual decay, and He longs to fix our problem. My desire for us this morning through the passage we just read is for God's Word to search our hearts and to peel off any layers of pretension that there may be. Should be a familiar word with you, pretension. We're so good at it. It, we shouldn't be too surprised when we can think of a man leaving his home after a massive argument, having unedifying thoughts on the way, screaming at somebody who gets into his lane. And after all that, he bumps into his colleague, puts on a big smile and lies saying good morning when it's actually been the worst morning of his life. We seem to come under a pressure, some sort of pressure to put on a face in certain situations. And this verse, in a sense, relates to that. Because in Matthew 5, 48, the verse was, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Soon after that, in our opening verse today, 6, 1, God says, Beware. Don't pretend. Don't try and act righteous in front of other people. Because the greater the demand for holiness, the greater the opportunity for hypocrisy. Now, that is sad, but it's a reality. Why is that the case? And this passage today is going to help us look at the true motives of our hearts, and then finally draw us to a word of exhortation to remind us how to preserve our joy and where our true treasure should be. Now, this season has stripped smiles of many faces just with sicknesses and job losses and a whole lot of uncertainties that still loom over us. How can we in the midst of all this still be joyful and preserve our treasure? Would you look at Matthew chapter 6 with me? And you will see in the structure of this message that Jesus actually refers to three fundamental Jewish acts of piety. Now, the first one you will see is charity or almsgiving in verses 2 to 4. The next you will see is prayer in verses 5 to 15, and then fasting in verses 16 to 18. But let's look at the first one because we will see similar treatment in each of these cases. Verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in synagogues and in streets. You see now, Jesus is trying to draw attention to the fact that the manner in which we do this should not be an act of righteousness. It should be genuine. When you think of the trumpet here, it could be a metaphor. Or for people in those days, it could be literally the trumpet in Jerusalem going off, drawing the attention of citizens around to a big need. And so imagine there's a shop owner and he hears a trumpet call goes off and he pulls the shutters down, walks hastily down the streets of Palestine, kicking up street. And he has just visibly now demonstrated that the need in the temple is greater than his business. 
And so he has drawn attention to his zeal and how he's done that. On the surface, he looks like a philanthropist, such a generous person. But God is drawing our attention to the fact that deep within, his desire is actually fueled by selfishness. How do we know that? Because this verse strips what we do not see and it shows us that quite often when people do this, they're doing it in a certain manner. They're doing it in a certain place or a strategic locations where others will see them. Why do they do this? Because they want man's praise. It's pretty explicit there. And what do they get in return? Well, the verse says, I tell you, they have received their reward. They wanted man's praise and they got it. They've got their reward in full. But that's all they'll get. Remember the warning in verse 1. When you do your acts of righteousness in front of people, you're not going to get a true reward from our Father. Now, what does that look like for us today? I remember when I used to go to my church as a teenager, when it was time for the offertory, a little bag would go around. And I noticed this phenomenon that maybe you've seen as well. The smaller bills were folded several times to fit within the palm and people would drop it in. But the bigger the bill, the bigger the denomination, like the hundreds and the five hundreds, they were folded just once. Now, I wasn't looking at specks in people's eyes. I, as well, struggled with this. On days, I would have just a coin. And so it was my turn. I would put a hand deep into the bag and drop the coin at the bottom so it doesn't make any noise. Do you struggle with being concerned about what people think about you? This man's honor and recognition influence the way you respond in certain situations. And so you can see, when you look at the next example, you will see the same point that Jesus makes over here. So move further with me to verse 5. This is about prayer. When you pray, you must not be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Notice again, where they stand, how they do this, and why they are doing this. You know, have you ever been at maybe a cell group gathering or community group gathering where you come under some sort of pressure when it's your turn to pray? You want to use the right cliches when you modulate your voice or, or try and quote a verse? Or maybe somebody else just prayed and now you're under pressure to live up to that expectation? Or what about some others who, who don't want to pray? They don't like the prospect of just being asked to pray. Now, yes, I understand some of us are introverts and we have different personalities, but sometimes, deep within our hearts, our concern could be, what are people going to think of when I pray? How well would my prayer sound? And so there's an unhealthy concern of a certain image that we want to portray on the outside. You see this again when you go further down in verse 16. When it comes to fasting, you see the same motive here. Well, let me clarify at this point, when you read through this passage, Jesus does not have a problem with fasting, giving, or praying. Like we all have engaged in the, in, the, in the recent weeks. But the concern over here is that there is no genuine piety. This is not sincere, and so there will be no reward from God. So when you think of fasting and you see similar motives over here, they do this because they want man's praise. They put on a certain face over here. Now let me contextualize this example for us as well. Imagine we got to gather pretty soon for our church service. And at the end of it, it went really well and there's an additional bonus. Somebody said there are fresh croissants available outside. And you find a line there and your pastor's in the queue as well. And guess what? Your pastor likes croissants. And so you hang around over there, but when it's your turn to actually pick it up, you don't take one. And somebody asks you saying, brother, don't you want one? And you know, actually, I'm fasting today. 
but you came and stood there so that someone would ask you why you aren't eating. Now, I know you haven't done that, but do you see how subtle and innovative this sin can be? In all these cases, the examples of here, even in our own lives, our hearts are so deceptive. We might not be able to see within layers. And so in this case, I am painfully aware of my own sin in my life. My prayer, even before preaching this morning, was not to be concerned of what other people think. Jeremiah 17.9 says, Our hearts are deceitful above everything else. But then 17.10 is a word of assurance saying, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine our minds. And that is what we want this passage to do for us this morning. Now, just to summarize this, you can see, I haven't seen too many examples in Scripture where Jesus uses three examples back to back to make the same point. If I want to summarize all three, what is the method in all these three cases? It's a PR stunt. They want people to they do it in, in a manner that others see them. What is the motive? To be seen by people and they want man's praise. And what is the reward in this case? The reward is, well, that's what you wanted. You've got man's praise. Or you've got man's acceptance. You've got man's recognition. Or man's honor. And... I want you to take a minute to think of whether you struggle with this. Because soon after these three examples, the passage flows into verse 19, which says, there's a treasure below. And God warns us saying that treasure will perish. It's not going to last. He does not want us to invest in that treasure, but most people do. What in these three examples was the treasure? What did people want in all those examples that we looked at? The honor and acceptance and praise of man. And God's warning us saying that's going to perish. Do you struggle? Do you invest in this treasure below when you go about your daily life? Let me use an illustration just to help you think along with me. Now, suppose you were able to go on a holiday. Now, that sounds pretty rude, especially at a time like this. Just imagine you could be, we all want to. So let's say you can go on a holiday or let's say you can stay, live forever on this island. It's a beautiful island and you're going to get an ATM card that the church gives you. It's got unlimited access to cash, so no daily withdrawal limits, by the way, and you can withdraw as much as you want. There's a hyper mall on this island. You can buy everything that you wanted. Your branded clothes, your accessories, your latest gadgets, your makeup kits, whatever food you wanted, even fancy cars or jewelry. Anything and everything is available on this mall. You can go there and you can live there. I know that sounds unreal, but just imagine this is true. And there are always terms and conditions. But this one has just one condition. You can live on that island. You can buy all of this with unlimited cash. But you will be the only person living on that island. Now, I can't see your faces. But the last time I heard this example, my face dropped when I heard I'm going to be the only person, on the island, person living on the island. Can you for a moment think with me what kind of clothes we would wear on that island? Because there's nobody there to see what we're doing now. What kind of houses, what kind of cars would we drive? What kind of accessories would we, would we load ourselves with? The point being, we're pretty surprised on how much of what we do is influenced by what people think. And so that is at the heart of what this passage is trying to, trying to get at. We shouldn't be surprised when we sort of notice all around us that every picture on social media is actually a better picture than reality. People don't wake up in the morning and post a picture when they just wake up, isn't it? But when you find a picture of yourself that's better than what you actually look like, put it out there. Why? Because you and I want likes. Because there's a God-shaped vacuum within us when we aren't in a right relationship with the Father. When we don't delight in God, then we have to fill this with some other way. 
And this is all around us. So I don't have specific questions for kids and adults this morning because this sin has penetrated all age groups. The whole world is functioning with a value system that thrives on this. Have you heard the definition of consumerism? Someone said, we buy things that we don't need with the money we don't have to please people we don't know. That is an empty life, brothers. Now, advertisements know this. They thrive on this philosophy. It's all around us. Have you ever wondered why skinny jeans, though they use less material than regular jeans, are actually more expensive? So lesser cloth used, but priced higher. It doesn't make any sense. It's because they know you will pay anything to squeeze into it. You see, when we think of these examples, we're trying to remind ourselves that there's a certain value system we want to be sensitive to. Not about the specific choices that I called out, but it's something that God hates. So for example, in Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, at the end of that verse, he says, what is highly exalted among people is detestable in God's eyes. It's an abomination. God hates that because people love money. And in fact, this passage goes on to speak about how we cannot serve God and money. Because at the root of money, when you don't live by your needs, what you are actually seeking to buy is man's honor or the acceptance of others. And so this text is for us to examine our hearts and say, is this true in my life? Because God does not want us to delight in this treasure below. Now this is rampant, especially during this pandemic, because people have lost jobs. And if you think your significance or your worth is in what you do, then you can feel a sense of insignificance now. And so things that we treasure just seem to perish. And God is warning us in verse 19 saying, that's not what you invest in. That's not going to last. Now let's look at what the treasure above is then. If, if this is a serious struggle, what does God want to draw our attention to? Now look with me at the verses again. In sequence, But now that you're familiar with the structure, we can do this, you can walk with me a little faster. So notice in all those three examples, you can see how they are juxtaposed. How each of those examples actually have a strong contrast. So for example, in verse 3, we look at how verse 2 was the right way to give. But in verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be done in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, the way of saying your left hand should know what your right hand is doing is be so discreet about it. There should be no danger of secret pride. And this is just between you and the Father. Can you see how this is the opposite of verse 2? That giving was for people to see. This is not. That giving was to please people. This is not. That reward was people saying, you are so generous. But here, it's the Father who's going to reward you in secret. You will see the same as you move further in the other examples. So look at verse 6, for example, when it comes to praying. He says, get behind closed doors. Get on your knees and be alone with the Father. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that one of the spiritual disciplines that most people lack is personal prayer time on their knees. And I guess it's because there's nobody seeing us. Maybe we're not motivated enough. That's a reflection of how intimate we are with the Father. And he goes on again, and in verse 17 and 18 in fasting, calls out the same condition saying, don't do this for people to see. Now, what's the common thread with, between these three cases? In all three cases, the method they use is not for others to see. They're not blowing their trumpets. The motive here is not to please people. It's to please God. And the reward over here is, your father who sees what in secret will reward you. Now, 
hang on a minute. If this is an integral part of my life, if I struggle with the treasure below and everything that I do is influenced by what people think, you, you want me to bring a radical change in not living like that anymore? And what's the reward over here? The reward says, I tell you, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So is this some sort of a future reward? That's not motivating enough now. But there's more than that. Pay close attention with the words used over here. Let me draw your attention again to specific words that God in his sovereign ways has used here. In all three cases, when you look at, which is verse 2, verse 5, and 16, or in other words, in all three cases, when you did it to please people, the last statement is similar. It says, they have received their reward in full. Contrast that to all three cases, 4, 6, and 18. When you do it in secret, the last sentence is different. It says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's a small change in words there, but it makes a massive world of a difference. Did you notice that? Because when you do it publicly, the word used this, they, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. They. He has no relationship. It feels distant. They. But when you do not do it to please people, when you do it in secret, secret he doesn't use the word they. He replaces it with your father. You see, the treasure is being his child. This God who spoke the world into being is calling you his son or his daughter. But our, we are so full of ourselves, we overlook this. When we read a sentence which says, your father who sees in secret will reward you, we're going, where's the reward? But you see, he's replaced the words they. We're no longer distant to him. He is our reward. Being his child is our treasure. And this fits the way this passage closes. In verse 19, there's a treasure below, it perishes, because all of man's praise and glory is like grass that withers. But this treasure, in verse 20, where God says, invest in this treasure, he says, that is eternal, it cannot be stolen, no one can, can remove this ever from you. And if this relational dimension of God himself adopting me and calling me his child, it fits that treasure above so well. Because when I hear the gospel and I respond to it, I am sealed until the day he comes back like Ephesians 1.13 would tell us. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, like how Romans 8 ends. Or no one can snatch you from the Father. Remember, Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. In John 10.29, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, isn't this treasure good enough for us to overcome the sinful disposition in our hearts to constantly think about what people think about us? Isn't this much more precious? Shouldn't we be a people who are concerned about what God thinks more than what people think about us? Is this treasure true in your life today? And I ask you if this treasure is real, because we can read all of this and sometimes with all the right theology, we can forget that this is not an invitation to doctrines. This is not an invitation even to the gospel. It's an invitation to a person. This is about a real palpable relationship that you and I can enjoy today and grow in our intimacy when it comes to walking with Jesus. In some sense, we're like the dentist on the flight. She was drawn because she saw a problem. When God says, God so loved the world, imagine what the world looked like. It was dark, it was ugly, and we were spiraling towards destruction and death. But yet, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so... He is drawn to us despite what we look like. And so in a culture, this is important, in a culture where everybody wants to affirm to us that our significance is based on what we do or how we look or some skill sets that we have, 
you and I and our children need to grow up realizing in this precious truth that the gospel says he first loved us like 1 John 4, 19. We didn't do anything to earn his acceptance. We are loved and that's where we begin. Now, Paul, I want to close with these thoughts. Paul is a recipient of this blessed gospel and he seems to enjoy a certain freedom that a lot of us lack. When he, that, that freedom is obvious when he writes to the church in Corinth. And so I'm going to read out 1 Corinthians just verse 4, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul, in essence, is saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you think about me. In fact, forget about my own evaluation of myself. He is free from all of that. And in the sort of courtroom kind of language that he's using over here, he's saying he doesn't feel the pressure to stand on any trial. But if any of us struggle with the problem of self-esteem, we feel like we're on trial every day because we need people to approve what we do. And that's why we've become so good at our defenses with justification and pretension and religious hypocrisy like this pastor is trying to warn us about. Now, Paul does not feel this pressure because what he's saying in effect over here is he is out of the courtroom. The trial is over. The verdict has been declared. The trial is over because Jesus went on trial in our place. He was humiliated. He was rejected and he was put to death. And now because of the finished work on the cross, the Father can look at you and me and say the same words that he said to Jesus. It's available to us in a similar sense. That I love you and you are my blessed son. Brothers and sisters, we need to change what's been ingrained in our minds. The world has been trying to tell us that what we, who we are is based on what we do. In other words, all that we're gonna, we, we will do in these years will shape a certain identity. But the gospel flips that on its head. And it says who we are because of what God has done for us should now determine what we do. We are free. We, we are accepted, we are cherished, and we are loved. Timothy Keller drew my attention to this point that, you know, among all the worldviews, there is something unique about the gospel. It is the only place where we hear a verdict even before the performance. Isn't that true? How much of pressure does that take off? We've heard the verdict. We don't have to perform now. We can be joyful and faithful in how we go about everything that we do. We do not have to be religious hypocrites. And so, brothers and sisters, God loves us and he's accepted us through the finished work on the cross. And so now, this should be our greatest treasure. This should be our deepest joy. This should be our eternal pleasure. God himself, because of what Jesus did for us. Would you join me, closing in prayer? Father, this is a truth that we know, and yet our hearts are prone to wander. Would you lay afresh on our hearts, the reality of how rich this relationship is, how beautiful this good news is, that we are loved. This is the only voice that we hear saying, you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so would you draw us and teach us to preserve this treasure during these days and let the church be a contract culture in the midst of anxiety and in the midst of uh, uh, an environment where there are no smiles. Would you teach us to reflect true joy and be a witness for you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.